Thanks, Eric, and thanks for everyone's hospitality. I got a grand tour of the entire campus and went around the football stadium a few times, and to me, that's fun. That's interesting. I have never given a lecture at night, so I have had these fears of everyone uh, falling asleep, maybe including me. So when I was told that I would speak for an hour, I'm probably going to get done early. And I say this for a couple of reasons, mainly because after over 20 years of lecturing to medical students and residents, especially medical students, I would only get good evaluations if I finished early. <laughs> and it really, it really never mattered what I said, <laughs> as long as they got out early. So uh, when you're filling out the evaluations, just remember, I'm the guy that got you home 15 minutes early tonight. <laughs> now, the, the topic is a little complex. And I'm going to try to simplify it, but not, you know, not by avoiding the issues, I gave you a handout that is far more detailed than anything I could go over. And I hope the handout is useful to you as a reference. Uh, there are, I think, about 50 endnotes, so you can find the references easily. There's even a section in the handout that tells you how to download case law for free if you want to actually read any of the landmark cases. This will not be a, a basic introductory lecture because we emergency physicians are the experts in, on EMTALA. And the whole art of transferring patients, it's one of many, many examples of specialized knowledge that we have that no you know, no other field possesses. And be, always being at a medical school, I would occasionally run into people that say, well, what unique knowledge do you have? And I would al always answer by saying, how much time do you have for my answer? But this is one of many, many things that we know that other people can't do. I've taken hundreds and hundreds of transfer calls, especially during my 18 years at Charity Hospital we would get 30 or 40 calls a day for many years. And I could always tell when there was an emergency physician at the other end as opposed to a surgeon or a cardiologist who was in an ED and they assumed the responsibility of transferring the patient and the patient wasn't stable. And if I said they had to be stabilized first, you know, it led to an immediate confrontation on the phone. Whereas an emergency physician knows that's one of your duties under federal law to appropriately screen, stabilize, and transfer patients. Now, there may be a few of you that aren't familiar with the statute, so I'm just going to take the first 10 minutes to review the statute, and then we're going to go much further. We're going to talk about regulations. I don't know how many speakers you've heard on the topics that, on this topic that, that goes over the contrast between regulations and statutes. I'm going to tell you how the regulations apply to your practice. And we could go through the interesting case law in your handbook, in your handout all night long. And I'm going to try to start with the most important cases. And when our time is up, unfortunately, we'll have to stop. But if you're motivated enough, you can look through the rest of the handout. And I feel that I have all the landmark cases in the handout. Some of them, some of these decisions were rendered one was rendered three months ago. One was rendered seven months ago. So you really have up-to-date information in your handout. Well, EMTALA created three duties under federal law. The duty to appropriately screen, stabilize, and transfer patients. Believe it or not, this was the first statute under federal law that ever said that any physician must take care of a specific patient. It's the first time the government ever did this, and of course it's an, it's an unfunded mandate. Uh, normally normally under, our, under our Constitution, when the government requires us to do something, they take our labor and give 
nothing in return, they've really violated a property right that we have. We all have a property interest in our work. And even though we are all dedicated professionals, when you wind up in a courtroom, the property value that you have in your work might be $100 an hour. I mean, attorneys discuss property rights in crass forms like that. We don't. But it is a true right that you have. So you're mandated to perform a service under federal law without compensation. Let's talk about the screening exam, and this is Section A in the, in the Imtala statute. And this is not my opinion. This is the overwhelming majority of legal commentators in this area feel that Congress's biggest mistake when it <coughs> finalized Imtala was the failure to define an appropriate medical screening exam. And because of that failure to define the medical screening exam, that alone has led to more litigation than any other aspect of EMTALA. Attorneys love vaguely worded statutes. The, the worse the language, the poorer the statute is written, the more it can lead to endless litigation. And this is what happened with the screening exam requirement. What the law states is that when an individual, any individual enters a hospital ED and a request is made on their behalf, the request doesn't even have to come from the patient, a request is made on their behalf, they shall receive, and shall, when you see the word shall in a statute, that means it's mandatory. They shall receive an appropriate medical screening exam including ancillary services routinely available. And the objective of the screening exam should be to detect emergency medical conditions. And pretty much that's word for word out of the statute. That's your obligation. Is a negligent exam an inappropriate exam? Most plaintiff attorneys in the country in 1987, when this law became operative, they thought so, and they would tack on an MTALA claim to almost every malpractice lawsuit. You know, that would get the case into federal court, and that usually means more money. So the federal courts were inundated with this inappropriate use of the MTALA statute. When we talk about the case law, you'll see how federal courts develop their own rule because Congress failed to define what constitutes an appropriate screening exam. Congress did provide a definition for an emergency medical condition. It's in your handout on page one. And you know, to try not to waste time and keep everyone awake until the end of the talk, some of these definitions you can get right off in the handbook. There's, there's nothing profound here, except that they define extreme pain as an emergency medical condition. Sometimes that's problematic. They did define stability. And this is a legal definition. You know, when a cardiologist wanted to transfer an unstable angina, and this happened several dozen times to me, and I would say, unstable angina means the patient's unstable. And they would argue with me, and I would tell them, the definition of stability is a legal definition. It's not a medical definition. And under the law, under MTALA, a patient is unstable if it's reasonably likely that their condition will deteriorate en route. And remember, under MTALA, if you send someone home, that's a transfer. So you can transfer people home or to another hospital, to a nursing home, whatever. So whether or not they do deteriorate, if it's reasonably likely that they, deteri that they could deteriorate, that defines an unstable patient. Now, when you do transfer someone and they do crash you know, halfway to the other hospital, then that creates the basic presumption that you did not stabilize the patient. Now, that's a presumption that you can rebut. 
in court, but it's difficult. So that's a real concern when you transfer someone, you get a phone call back and the guy said, well, you know, that transfer you sent me, now he has no blood pressure, and they had to divert to elsewhere general to intubate him. Because he was a burn and his nasal hairs were singed and he was coughing soot, and maybe you should have thought about intubating him before he left the hospital. Computer shut down. I, I pretty much know the next several slides anyway, so we t until we get going again. Uh, once, you, once you screen and stabilize a patient, your obligations under EMTALA are complete. That's important to know. Once you screen the patient, you document they're stable, you have no more obligations under EMTALA. The transfer criteria only apply to unstable patients. So when would you transfer an unstable patient? You screen them, you, try, you stabilize them to your maximal ability. You can't further stabilize them at your hospital, so then you transfer them. That requires a little more documentation. You know, you know they're being transferred in an unstable condition, and you've got to explain why they still need to go to a higher level of care. In fact, you have to sign a certification, an oath, that the medical benefits of the transfer outweigh the risks, i.e., a financial transfer won't cut it. You can't sign an oath like that if your administrator says, get rid of the patient, he doesn't have insurance. The medical benefits of the transfer have to outweigh the risks. In your handout, I think it's on page three, there's a long list of criteria that define stability, uh, what is an appropriate transfer of an unstable patient. You know, the medical records have to go with the patient. You have to get the proper consent. The proper personnel and equipment have to go with the patient. And it's really a, a good common sense list of obligations that you must complete so that the transfer of the unstable patient is appropriate. There are a few miscellaneous provisions at the end of EMTALA. One is the so-called reverse dumping provision. It means that if your hospital has special capabilities, like a burn unit, a cardiac cath lab, an ICU, surrounding hospitals don't have those facilities, then under EMTALA you have specialized capabilities. Also with regard to rural hospitals, if you were considered a regional referral center, you cannot turn down any appropriate transfer if you have the capacity to take care of the patient. In other words, you have a bed for the patient, your MRI machine's you know, going to be available in the next six hours. We've had calls to our hospital, well, we need to transfer your patient because our MRI won't be available for three hours. And I tell people, well, if you can hold on for a minute, I'll, I'll let you know when ours will be available. You know, maybe our MRI machine won't be available for eight hours. Your shock trauma might have it tied up. They may, they, may, they may have 15 patients waiting to go into the MRI. So if you have the capacity and the capabilities, you cannot turn down an appropriate transfer. We cannot delay provision of the screening exam to ask about payment, to ask about insurance. Now, what about the patient who has a sprained wrist and you know she's going to have a five to eight hour wait until she's examined? Certainly, you can fully register her and you can ask about insurance ad nauseum. You can take an hour to ask about insurance. If someone comes in with crushing retrosternal chest pain, nausea, diaphoresis, the pain going down the left arm, they're loaded with risk factors, you're not going to stop everything and check all their insurance before you let them get a screening exam. Even if someone has a true emergency and there's, you, you perform what's called a de minimis infraction, that means maybe a registration person just said, well, what type of insurance do you have? Or do you still have the same insurance you had last month when you came here. 
that's okay because it's not going to delay the provision of the screening exam. And I mentioned that example because there's specific litigation that I'll tell you about, about a little later where the family thought that gave them grounds to sue. Because before the husband had a cardiac arrest in the waiting room and the patient was waiting to be triaged, the patient walked over to the registration desk and showed the clerk his insurance card. So that was held not to be a violation of EMTALA. But you just can't slow down provision of the screening exam to ask about insurance. And finally, there's a whistleblower pr uh, provision. If you know your hospital flagrantly violated EMTALA and you report it, they, it's illegal for them to retaliate against you in any way. In one slide, this sums up all of EMTALA, everything that you need to know on a routine basis clinically. Patient comes in and a request is made on their behalf. They get an appropriate medical screening exam. You don't find any emergency medical condition. You have no further obligations under EMTALA. If you do find an emergency medical condition, you stabilize them. Again, you fulfilled your obligations under EMTALA. If you find an emergency medical condition, you can't stabilize them. What do you do then? You stabilize them to your hospital's maximum potential, and then you appropriately transfer them. Any questions? Really, this is what you'll hear in a standard 45-minute introduction to EMTALA. And we really did this in about, about 12 minutes. So now we're gonna, we're gonna go far beyond the standard, you know, your standard EMTALA lecture, and we're gonna start out by discussing regulations. And I'll tell you why I have a picture of the White House. When Congress passes a complex piece of legislation, like Medicare, Congress doesn't want to administer, they didn't want to administer the Medicare Act, so they can delegate the authority to administer, administer legislation to an appropriate branch of the executive government. For example, the Federal Department of Health, the DHH, Department of Health and Human Services. Within the DHH, the administrative office is called HICFA, or was called HICFA until four years ago, now called CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So your hospital here has an administrator, HICFA slash CMS, is the administrator for the Federal Department of Health. So CMS now has the job of administering Medicare, and EMTALA is an amendment to the Medicare Act. When you look it up in the US Code, you find it under the Medicare Act. And because HICFA had the authority to administer EMTALA, they had the right to write regulations. So Congress writes statutes, laws, federal agencies that are a branch of the executive wing of government, they write regulations. As far as you and I are concerned, regulations are law. They have the same effect on you and I as statutes. So the EMTALA regulations written by HICFA and now CMS have the same effect on our practice as the EMTALA statutes. Some judges are more likely to overturn or ignore regulations. They can't ignore a law. They can sometimes overturn it. And so courts give greater deference to statutes. But you and I can't make any distinction. EMTALA was passed by Congress in 19... What happened here? EMTALA was passed by Congress in 1986. It became effective in 1987, and the first regulations were not written or finalized until seven years later. And some of the interesting things that came out of the first set of regulations, this is where it was announced. Somehow we skipped a slide.
Okay, there we go. This is where it was announced that we not only have a duty to report violations, but let's say you're on the receiving end of a transfer that you feel was inappropriate, that your hospital was just dumped on because the patient had no insurance. And if you have actual knowledge that that happened, you have 72 hours to report the violation to the Federal Department of Health, or you can be fined up to $50,000 for violating MTALA. To my knowledge, that's never happened to any physician or hospital. So the threat is out there. I don't know that it's ever been enforced. So remember that physicians and hospitals can both be fined by the Federal Department of Health. Only hospitals can be sued by patients. So a patient can't file an MTALA lawsuit against you, only against the hospital. And when you look at the congressional record, Congress did this because their feeling was that hospitals were economically motivated to dump uninsured patients. And that's the language Congress used when they debated MTALA. They called it the anti-dumping law. And they said, on the other hand, emergency physicians don't have this incentive, that if a patient gets admitted at your hospital, ordinarily that's not going to cost you anything. The hospital is, isn't going to like it, and maybe there are some hospitals out there that want you to get rid of non-paying patients. So patients may only file suit against hospitals, but you and the hospital can be fined up to $50,000 per occurrence, or you can get permanently excluded from Medicare for repeated or flagrant violations. That means your career is over as an emergency physician. No one's going to hire you if you can't bill Medicare. Here in the first regulations, they said that MTALA even applies to hospitals that don't have emergency departments. And in the regulations, they gave the example of a psych hospital that has a crash cart. So if, if a hospital without an ED has policies that commit it to taking care of emergencies, then MTALA still applies. If someone stumbles into this psych hospital and says, I'm having chest pain, they can't just immediately retransfer the patient without a screening exam, stabilizing the patient to their maximum potential, and then transfer. Here they said for the first time that as far as MTAL is concerned, when a patient has reached hospital property, they have come to the emergency department, no matter where they are. If they stumbled onto the sidewalk, they're in the front lobby. But if they're in the front lobby with chest pain, they have to get that appropriate medical screening exam. And here, again, they just emphasize the fact that we can't make financial inquiries that could possibly delay the screening exam. Now, in 1995 and 98 and 99, HICFA provided written directives to state inspectors. And nothing you see on this slide has the force of law, but it's persuasive. A lot of courts find this information persuasive because this is how HICFA, now CMS, interprets their duty to enforce the law. Here you find the requirement that there has to be a sign in every ED notifying patients of their rights under MTALA. You probably have a sign just like this in your waiting room, and this is where it comes from. This is where you find the rule that your ED has to keep a log of every patient who ever came there for a five-year period, and, you, and the ED also has to keep the on-call schedules every day for the last five years. It's, a, it's not a regulation, but it's something you better do because uh, CMS investigators who come from the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General, they may ask you for such logs. They're going to want to look at your policies. You have to have a policy that describes how you, how you provide appropriate medical screening examinations. Finally, in 1998, HICFA decided to define appropriate medical screening exam this did not come from a regulation. It's a poor definition, 
and fortunately very few courts picked up on this definition. But in this definition, HICFA said that an appropriate medical screening exam is reasonably calculated to diagnose emergency medical conditions. That may sound like a fair definition. I'll tell you why it's bad. One definition of negligence is someone who acts unreasonably. So whenever you put the word reasonable in a definition, it connotes a negligence standard of conduct. And by 1998, every single federal court of appeals said that EMTALA is not a negligence statute. EMTALA has nothing to do with malpractice. That a negligence screening exam is not an EMTALA violation. A discriminatory screening exam is an EMTALA violation. EMTALA is an anti-discrimination law. And Congress, when you look at their debate before they finalized EMTALA, their motive was to prevent economic discrimination in hospital emergency departments. But in the final draft of EMTALA, it's written so broadly that courts have all concluded that EMTALA's final intent was to prevent discrimination of all types. I, I can remember in the early 90s getting a few calls from hospitals that said, your patient has to come to charity, this patient has to come to charity because we don't take care of AIDS. And by the mid-90s, there were prominent cases in, in the EMTALA case law that said that is a flagrant violation of EMTALA because it discriminates against patients with a particular disease. So that's no reason to um, transfer a patient. I would, you know, I tried to politely ask these people, well, do you have infectious disease people at your hospital? Do you have an ICU? Do you have this or that? Well, then you can take care of this patient and I really don't want to be involved in a, an improper transfer. And that, that would have been an illegal transfer under EMTALA. And again, they reiterated that a bad outcome, i.e. someone is alleging negligence because of a bad outcome, that is not necessarily, it's almost never an EMTALA violation. You know, someone who has a bad outcome and they file an EMTALA suit, you look at these opinions and they say, well, this patient had the option of filing a malpractice case in state court. They didn't have to come to federal court to file an EMTALA claim. So these people still have an avenue to try to recover damages. They just don't have to do it under EMTALA. Triage does not equal a medical screening exam, definitely. It's unambiguous. This did not come from a regulation again. This is from a HICFA directive to state inspectors. But when they inspect you, they're going to tell you that triage is not a screening exam, it's just a way to prioritize patients. Now, if you had a physician as your triage officer who actually did the initial H&P, there, there are a few places that do that, then you could say that your triage exercise was an appropriate medical screening exam. UC Davis does that. They have an emergency physician who's the initial triage officer and they triage up to one-third of their patients out of the ED into a clinic. In 1998, again, they said that the screening exam can be located anywhere on hospital property. Now, these are regulations, again, in the year 2000 that have the absolute force of law. And these were nightmare regulations. That this is where they came up with the 250-yard rule, and I don't, I don't want to get into that in much detail because that was thrown out three years later. But between the year 2000 and 2003, CMS had the attitude that any patient found anywhere within 250 yards of the main hospital building deserved a medical screening exam. Now, at Charity, we had a Burger King right across the street on Tulane Avenue. And that meant that if someone choked on a Whopper, it was my job to provide the medical screening exam. 
Yeah, it, it, was a, it was a ridiculous regulation, and there was so much negative um, pressure from the medical community, they got rid of that in 2003. This is also where they had the rule that if the hospital owned a clinic anywhere off campus, they were fully liable under MTALA. And again, they got rid of that in 2003. So I don't want to spend much time on the 2000 regulations, but I want to let you know what is the current state with regard to these rules. Well, first of all, in 2003, they, they limited hospital property to the main hospital building, the entrance, the driveways, the back ramp, and if a parking lot was physically attached to the hospital. Okay, so if a patient is in any of those areas, and that's all in the handout, and they get sick and they ask for a screening exam, someone needs to discover them in a reasonable period of time, and in most cases get them to the ED where they can get their exam. Also in 2003, CMS coined this phrase, dedicated emergency department, and they said that outpatient clinics that were off campus no longer had to comply with MTALA unless they qualified as a dedicated ED. And there are three elements that can result in a clinic being labeled a dedicated ED if it fulfills any one of these three elements. Number one, if it's licensed by the state as, a, as an emergency department. Number two, if the hospital holds out the facility to the public as an emergency department. You know, if the hospital is reckless enough to put a sign in front of this freestanding clinic that says emergency department, then it's going to be held to the full responsibilities under MTALA. And I say reckless because why would, I don't know why a provider would ever want to voluntarily magnify their liability. And the third element is any facility in which one-third of all the visits in the previous years were for emergency medical conditions. So I would think that almost all off-campus hospital-owned clinics are free of MTALA now. There are a few exceptions around the country, but not, not all that many. What about someone who shows up in surgery clinic and um, gets chest pain? Does M is MTALA operative there? The answer is clearly no, because Medicare conditions on participation fully cover that patient. In other words, from other sections of the Medicare Act, hospitals are obligated to take care of those people, and it just doesn't fall under MTALA. Up until the year 2003, if your hospital owned an ambulance, the patient entered the ED for the purposes of MTALA when they set foot in the ambulance. Okay, now that's no longer true as long as the hospital-owned ambulance is part of a community-wide EMS network. In other words, if your hospital still owns its own ambulances, to bring, you know, prearranged nursing home patients to the ED when the hospital knows that 100% of those patients will have insurance, then the old rules still apply. But if your hospital-owned ambulance is part of a community network, then the MTALA is not triggered when the patient gets into the ambulance. It's only triggered when they arrive on hospital property. And remember, that's where, the, that's where the green line is. So if someone brings you a chest pain when you're really on diversion and they're still out in the ambulance bay and they haven't gotten inside, they've already come to your ED because they're on hospital property. It's unfortunate, but if you diverted them, if you said put the patient right back on the hospital and go to University Hospital, that technically would be an Antala violation because they came to your ED, and they didn't get their screening exam. I'm just the messenger. Not all of this is fair. I don't know if any of it's fair. I think some of it is, 
But, you know, a certain pattern you can see here is that as HICFA issued regulations, if you go back through your handout and you go from 94 to 98 to 99 to 2000, everything they wrote increased our liability, increased our responsibilities. And it wasn't until 2003 that we had a long set of amendments that lightened our liability. So in 2003, finally, things got a little better. They specified in this set of regulations that we do not treat managed care patients any differently. So if a managed care organization says you will not touch our patients until you call in and get authorization, you should ignore that. You'll get into trouble. There are a lot of specific regulations put out by CMS that, in, that reinforce um, that policy. They do not want managed care patients treated any differently because you're discriminating against the other patients. You're either discriminating against them or the other patients because you're treating them in, in a way that is not comparable. And you'll see that's, that's the test, the comparability test. Now, this has probably caused a lot of problems in every hospital in the state, really in the country. Why is it all of a sudden we can't reach ENT physicians after 6 o'clock? I'm not picking on them. Or plastic surgeons or general surgeons or gynecologists or anyone else. I mean, I know we have five ENT people at our hospital. Why is it that no one's on call tonight? Before November of 2003, if your hospital had specialty representation, someone had to always be available. Okay, CMS announced they were going to do away with that. And so there's a comment period in the Federal Register where people send in long-winded letters. And it's like letters to the, to the editor in Time Magazine. And everyone gets on a soapbox and says what their opinion is. And the general feeling was that HICFA would come up with a three-to-one ratio. That means that if you had three plastic surgeons on staff at your hospital, someone had to always be available. Well, instead of coming up with a ratio, CMS decided no ratio. And their rule now is that hospitals have to have a reasonable call schedule that provides appropriate care for their community. So that's so vague, it can mean nothing. You know, no one's available. That's reasonable in our community because we can send everything somewhere else. I mean, I'm aware of hospitals in the, I've only been in Baltimore for one year. I can think of many hospitals in the New Orleans area where somehow the ENT people caught onto this very quickly. And we got all these referrals from hospitals that I knew had a dozen ENT people. And they said, no one's ever on call anymore. So all of a sudden, we in the ED have a, have a new crisis. We can't find on-call people. We have to transfer everyone. So this is not the last word. Uh, you know, CMS changed the rule in a way that opened the door for some people that are frankly practicing in, a, in an abusive manner because they have a duty to their community that they're, they're not fulfilling. And guess what gets dumped on the ED? All the responsibility. Now you have delays in your ED. The patient's there for five hours waiting for a hospital that'll accept her. And it's made it that much more difficult for us to practice. So that whole situation came from a change in a, in a CMS regulation, November of 2003. None of you had that problem before November 2003. And here, I don't know how helpful this is, but CMS issued this regulation that EMTALA is not operative during a national disaster. A physician may be on call at more than one hospital, so if your surgeon's on call at your hospital, she may schedule surgeries at another hospital while she's on call. That was never allowed before. She can even schedule elective surgeries at your hospital. And there may be times where a surgeon is unavailable at your hospital, ever since November of 2003. Now, 
I'm going to end in about 10 minutes no matter what, but I'd like to get through some, some very landmark um, case law. And as far as the case law is concerned, this slide is most important. I told you that Congress failed to define what is an appropriate medical screening exam, and so the federal courts got flooded with these cases. Every federal court of appeal, all 11 circuits and the D.C. Circuit, all agreed that a negligent exam is not an inappropriate exam, but a discriminatory exam violates MTALA. And so they came up with this comparability disparity rule, and this is now the rule in every circuit all over the country. And the test they use is whether the plaintiff's screening exam was comparable to similarly situated patients. And that is the rule. So if a plaintiff alleges that she received an inappropriate medical screening exam, the test that the court will use to examine the claim is whether she received a disparate or dissimilar exam, i.e., whether the exam was not comparable to similar, similarly situated patients. In other words, if she had chest pain, she has to prove that the way she was handled was different from everyone else who comes to that hospital with chest pain. And one way plaintiffs get around this is by sending a subpoena for the hospital records and then they'll try to find some little area where you deviated from hospital protocol. And you know, when you're writing hospital policies, if you're involved at your hospital, your hospital policy book should not be a medical textbook. That's inappropriate. It should have procedures in there. You know, on your policy on chest pain, it shouldn't copy Rosen's chapter on acute coronary syndrome. A hospital policy assumes that practitioners know what they're doing and just provides the general procedures. But that is one way a plaintiff attorney can prove that her client received a dissimilar exam because you violated hospital policy. There used to be a test called the bad motive test that was only operative in the Sixth Circuit, Kentucky, Ohio, a few other states, where it said, well, MTALA is an anti-discrimination statute, so a plaintiff has to show bad motive. The problem is Congress left those words out of the statute. Congress never said that a plaintiff had to prove bad motive, so all the other, none of the other circuits picked up on the bad motive test. And in the only MTALA case ever heard by the U.S. Supreme Court, Roberts v. Galen, it's cited in your handout sometime around the year 2000, they shot down the bad motive test. That's all they decided. They took one very narrow issue and they shot that down and said it was not supported by the statute. The third test is a negligence test that was briefly adopted in the 80s by the Fourth Circuit. That's, the, that's Virginia and the Carolinas. And then within months, that same circuit reversed itself. They realized they made a mistake. So that's not, no longer a rule in any circuit. And this leaves us only with the, the real anti-discrimination definition of an improper medical screening exam. So that's the single biggest issue that was really ironed out by the federal courts. These are examples of case, really, these are both outrageous cases. The, con, the Hoffman case, was a case decided in federal court in California last year where a hospital had this incredible policy that said the ED physician had to exhaustively satisfy an entire differential diagnosis before making a diagnosis. In other words, if someone came in with chest pain, you had to show in your record how you ruled out the other 340 causes of chest pain before you diagnosed you know, reflux esophagitis. So, you know, when you go back to your hospitals, make sure you have, you know, policies that don't magnify your liability. If you've got old policies written by non-clinical people that 
didn't consult anyone who's working on the floor, you may wind up with a policy like this. And it was because of this policy, the hospital could not get the case thrown out on summary judgment. This case, I, I remember getting very angry when I read it. Cruz Chiepo, the Hospital Espanol de Puerto Rico. And it was decided by the First Circuit Court of Appeal includes all of New England and Puerto Rico. I don't know how that happened. But this, this man came in complaining of arm pain. Three different people documented it. A nurse out front, a physician out front, the physician in the back. He files his lawsuit and says, everyone in the hospital lied. I told everyone I had chest pain. And his argument was he should have been triaged immediately and not put in level three where he had to wait hours because he only came in with like forearm pain. And he said that violated my rights because the hospital policy said I should have been seen immediately. And see, in this case again, the hospital is trying to get the case thrown out on summary judgment before a, a trial could even start. When the issues are that obvious, a judge will do that. And the, and the, but when the judge does that, if there is a conflicting version of the facts, they have to take the word of the non-moving party. In other words, the party that did not file a motion for summary judgment. But here the hospital wanted to get the case dropped, and the court said, well, there's a, there's a genuine issue of material fact. There's a disagreement. The patient says he told everyone in the hospital he had chest pain, and that everyone in the hospital lied and said it was arm pain. So what this means is it doesn't mean the patient won. It means that he'll have to convince a jury that all the doctors lied and he really told everyone he had chest pain. I mean, I was involved in at least three cases like this. They were all chest pain cases. They were very, very, very similar fact pattern, and the juries did not believe any of these three plaintiffs. You know, that three doctors in different areas of the hospital somehow got together in a conspiracy and decided to lie about the patient and say that he only had arm pain. And that's what these plaintiffs alleged. So this case is, got me angry enough, but it only means that this plaintiff will have his day in court and the case didn't get thrown out. Well, the, two, the 2003 regulations state that Imtala does not apply to inpatients. This used to be, this used to be a controversy. But in 2003, CMS settled the controversy. They said that if someone's admitted they can't file an Intala claim unless the admission was a ruse to avoid stabilizing the patient. And then all of a sudden, when that language appeared, there was a, there was a flood of cases where plaintiff attorneys just downloaded that language from the statute from the regulation and said, my plaintiff was admitted, but only as a ruse to avoid stabilizing care. And CMS, to their credit, quickly reamended that regulation and said that MTALA will not apply to inpatients unless the admission was carried out in bad faith. Bad faith is very close to intent. It means you, the physician in the hospital, intended to let the patient, you know, exsanguinate on the floor and not treat the patient in the hospital just because you didn't want to send them out from the ED and get cited for an Intala violation. It, it's a fact pattern that should almost never occur. But here's a case where it did occur. Morgan v. North Mississippi Medical Center decided in a federal district court also last year. And here the family claims the husband was admitted, it was a trauma patient. And these court opinions never give you all the information you want. They only give you enough clinical information so the attorneys can understand the legal reasoning. So we don't know exactly what his injuries were, but he was told on arrival he would need an MRI. And when he got to his floor, they said, we're not going to do it unless you pay for it first. And when he and his family couldn't pay for it, they said, you're immediately discharged. So the fact pattern was so bad, the court let this plaintiff proceed, even though he was admitted, because they alleged the whole admission was a ruse to avoid stabilizing care. And so this case was filed before CMS further strengthened the language. Preston v. Meritor 
was a, a newborn, and the defense here made some pretty bad mistakes. They really took the callous approach that this infant did not even deserve a screening exam because from the second of his birth, he was an inpatient. And that so inflamed the court that they found a way to hold for the family. And the kid died a day or two later in, the, in another hospital after he was transferred. But they should have argued that certainly he deserved a screening exam. And we provided that screening exam and we stabilized him, but EMTALA no longer applies to inpatients. And even the dissenting opinion said that's the argument they should have, should have made and they would have won the case. So they sort of overplayed their hand and they said, well, EMTALA so obviously doesn't apply here, the baby didn't even deserve an exam. What court is going to empathize, empathize with a physician who says that about any patient? So here's a case that was badly litigated, attorney malpractice. I actually litigated the last year I was in, the last nine years I was in New Orleans, and we self-insured a group of 110 emergency physicians. So um, I don't brag about the fact that I'm an attorney, but all of the legal work I've ever done was, has been as a, as a physician advocate, so it's something I feel good about. And I even got to sue a plaintiff attorney at the end of my my stature, and I, I'll tell you about that some other time. They fight like cats and dogs when you name them. I mean, the whole thing's very hypocritical. This last case, uh, Lima Rivera v. UHS, also out of Puerto Rico, a dist federal district court, and this was a case, this, this was the case where the man came in with arm pain. And he told three different people who took three different independent notes that it was arm pain. And then he says, oh, no, I told everyone in the hospital it was chest pain, and I should have been seen immediately. And the hospital lost its motion for summary judgment, and that just means the case has to be litigated. We're getting pretty close to the end, and the, these are all great cases, and I uh, wish we had another hour to go through the cases, because these are all real cases that you're all, that you're all familiar with. Treatment delays, the Korea case was just a fantastic case where a woman with chest pain was allowed to sit out in the waiting room for five hours before she decided to walk out, and they stopped everything when they realized she was an HMO patient. They never told her anything. They just hoped she would, would leave, and when she left, she had a cardiac arrest. But this is a more typical case from this year, District of Kansas, Parker v. Salina. It's a man who weighed over 300 pounds and took him 20 minutes to register, and he dropped dead and had a cardiac arrest before he was waiting for triage. And we always wonder about this. What would a federal court do if a plaintiff or a plaintiff's family alleged that they waited so long for the screening exam that that's an MTALA violation? And this court said it absolutely is not that patients, ha patients have to be seen in a reasonable amount of, amount of time, and if there were 60 or 80 people in that ED, and even if he was a level one patient, as long as the hospital didn't violate any of its policies, he was not triaged or otherwise treated in a dissimilar or incomparable manner. So this is an important case for us. Uh, the failure to stabilize cases, remember that if someone is admitted, no one can ever allege that you failed to stabilize them in the ED because the whole um, definition of stability is based on whether or not someone deteriorates during transfer. So how can a plaintiff ever have a claim based on a failure to stabilize if you never transferred the patient? That's an, under, that's an important concept. The very definition of stability or instability depends on whether they deteriorate during transfer. So if you never transfer the patient, no one can ever allege that you failed to stabilize under MTALA because you didn't transfer them. The ambulance diversion cases, the Johnson v. University of Chicago is a leading case. A baby was coming toward the university. They were officially on diversion. 
went to a more distant hospital, was probably a SIDS case and died, and the court said if you're on diversion, the patient hasn't come to your ED yet, you can divert. This case out of Hawaii, Arrington v. Wong, patient with chest pains getting close to the hospital, and I guess they asked if he was a veteran. They said yes, and they said, okay, go to the VA, and he died on arrival, or had complications on arrival. And the court said, well, coming toward your hospital means the same thing as coming to. And in my opinion, that's wrong. That's a wrong, wrong decision. Uh, but as a result of this case, uh, when HICFA updated their regulations, they said that, that you can only divert an ambulance if you're officially on diversion, and now that's part of the MTALA regulations. So if you're not officially on diversion, you didn't, you didn't notify your EMS system you're on diversion, you can't start diverting ambulances. You're going to create liability under MTALA. Reverse dumping, it's the St. Anthony case that's the leading case where a surgeon was on call on a Sunday afternoon, a multiple trauma patient with a dissecting thoracic aorta. He refused it for no good reason. He could never explain why. I guess he didn't want to come in and take care of the patient, and the patient deteriorated and died. And uh, the holding in the case was clear. They evoked the anti-dumping statute of MTALA, and it doesn't matter whether the patient came to the hospital. That's a separate obligation under MTALA. You had no right to refuse the patient. You had empty beds, and you had the capability. I just want to mention this because the, the tobacco lawsuit magnates, Dickey Scruggs in Mississippi that won billions of dollars suing the states for tobacco, when he was done with that, he set up this huge class action suit against charitable hospitals all over the entire country saying that um, they were violating MTALA by even charging patients for emergency care. That was the premise of these class action lawsuits, that, that all of a sudden hospitals weren't allowed to charge anyone for emergency care because of MTALA, and people who didn't have insurance or weren't on Medicare didn't get the Medicare discount, and so they were charged more. And every single one of these lawsuits were thrown out on summary judgment. Not one even went to trial. So you may have heard about some of them. None of them ever amounted to a hill of beans. Uh, to just give you uh, a summary, not official advice, because I, I don't practice law in Iowa, but just something to walk away with, to look at this list a couple of times. You're going to spend the rest of your careers trying to avoid liability, and I think if you follow these simple rules, you will. Treat everyone the same. Don't ever delay an exam to ask about insurance, but if someone's going to sit in the waiting room for 10 hours, you know, with a hangnail, you can ask them about insurance. If you're a regional referral center in a rural area, or if you have specialized capabilities in an urban area, you cannot say no to an appropriate transfer for financial reasons or any other reason. Uh, beware of transferring someone out unstable. Make sure you sign that oath that the medical benefits outweigh the risks and provide some good documentations that you, mac you provided maximal stabilization to your hospital's full potential. And properly certify that oath. Send appropriate personnel and equipment with all transfers. Uh, if hospitals own their own ambulances, that increases liability for the hospital. Remember now that a patient has the right to ask for a screening exam, and that creates, that creates a duty for us when they are on hospital property, including the driveway, the ramps in the back, uh, and a parking garage that's attached to the hospital. And it's still good practice to maximally stabilize admitted patients. By my watch, we're done seven minutes early. Um, I, had, I can take any questions you have. And also, once we finish, if anyone still, I know you have meetings to go to. Um, Hans asked me to bring some pictures from Hurricane Katrina. I can go through those quickly. Uh, that's more entertaining than anything else. It was a unique disaster, and I have some good pictures for you. But any MTALA questions, I'll be here well into the evening, and 
I'll be here all morning uh, tomorrow if any of you will be here. Home is termed a transfer under MTALI. You're transferring the patient to home. So a transfer really means moving the patient anywhere outside of the hospital. It means sending them to the other hospital in your consortium because they're the only ones that have the MRI machine. You transferred them a block away to get the MRI and then they got transferred back, even though they were never discharged.